Welcome to Two D Pokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Robbie, we have a game this week: West Virginia, Virginia Tech at FedEx Sunday night. I could not be more excited. I cannot wait for the game. Football is back, and not in the same way that Miami is. So the, <laughs> we're we're talking about things that are really back. This is my hate week. I think it's your hate week as well. It is. Uh, UVA doesn't really carry the same stature as it used to back in the day. I know it's still a big game for a lot of people. It's also not a big game for me because I'll never see it because it's on Thanksgiving, uh, typically. So that kind of doesn't You'll never really see it live. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, I'll always watch it, but I'll <laughs> never see it live because uh, you know I'll have my mom all over me. In any case... WVU this week. This is my hate week. So cheers to college football hate week, at least for me, and I think also for you. Cheers, man. Okay, so we had a couple news and notes. Actually, I only have one, and it's the depth chart. It came out uh, not too much different from the depth chart we put out, but there were some in there, and the most notable one to me was Kyle Chung at right tackle. I don't think anyone expected that. French said Tyrell Smith might have been a little banged up, and that's why Chung got the nod at right tackle. I hope he's good. He's not particularly tall. He's supposed to be very athletic. Chung has always been slowed by injuries, and that's kind of what held him back. But they've always said he's an athletic kid, uh, got good weight on him, but he's only 6'3". A lot of tackles are 6'4", or taller, I feel like. But nevertheless, uh, we'll see what happens out there. Faf is the starting right guard, uh, as we kind of thought he would be. Um, but there's no Osterlaw on the two deep and no Austin Cannon. Those were the two things I noted. It was uh, DeAndre Planton came in on the uh, left guard behind Wyatt Teller. There was also no Phil Patterson, no Khalil Pimpleton, and no Khalil Adler. What were your thoughts That's on the wide make any receivers? Sense. Yeah, I did. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I and granted, I'm not second guessing anything. The fact is, is that the coaches are going to make the right decision on what we can put out on the field. And the but it's just surprising in what we expected. Is uh, all I was trying We've to say. We've heard is, so much about Patterson. You just thought he's going to be there. Yeah, and um, you know, in any case, you know, those two guys, you know, barring anything strange, are going to hit the fields at some point, maybe not this season, but next season, you know, we're going to see them producing. And I know we're hitting it once again, but it ties into the conversation that uh, Fuente wants eight. That's his number. And it always has been his number. It's what he had at Memphis. And um, hopefully they are part of the eight that we end up seeing on the field. Because last year we didn't, we didn't reach eight. We didn't even get close to to that. No, you actually look at the stats. And that's why the two deep is somewhat irrelevant when it comes to the guys on the second line because there will be a lot of guys, and it's probably very close. But the guys in their place of Pimpleton and Patterson were Hezekiah Grimsley, Clark, and Sean Savoy. And it was uh, James Clark, the transfer from Ohio State. And Sean Savoy was the incoming freshman. Uh, I think we mentioned him in our season preview, and he's been getting a lot of hype. And I considered even putting a slash next to Pimpleton and him in that two deep that we put out, but I didn't do it, uh, and I should have because he is the backup at slot receiver behind C.J. Carroll. Uh, James Clark was also the starting kick returner, and Mook, interestingly, was the backup kick returner. So 
I expect to see Stroman in one of those roles. I know he's the punt return guy, but he returned kicks last year. I just expected him to be one of those slots. To to have Clark and Mook in that role is is interesting. I think it's more surprising to have Mook in that role because uh, if you went back and looked at the, the you know, Ohio State fans were nice enough to you know put out some words and at least you know kind of preview what happened there. He's supposed to be pretty fast. I mean, he's supposed to be yeah. like a quick you know, guy. He's um, he's supposed to be pretty talented. So that's actually kind of exciting that somebody that we haven't seen much on that seems like he's got some talent. The Mook, I, that one, I kind of blew me out of the out of the water. But hey, I'm I'm excited about it as well. I love him. Fuente loves speed, man. So if if you're the fastest guy on the team, which Clark seems like he's very close to being then it makes sense that he's in that kick return role and in that uh, backup wide receiver role on the outside. Let's do a little background information on West Virginia before we call a special guest. Last year, West Virginia was 10-3. and They went 7-2 and in conference and finished 18th in the AP poll. They also finished 29th in the S&P, and it was their best season under Dana Holgerson – since he's his time at West Virginia, they tied for second in the big 12 this year coming into the season. Athlon has them at 26. Lindy's has them at 22, but Phil Steele put them at 49 in his power poll. And Bill Connolly's projected S and P was 69th to the tune of a five and seven season. So two of the most trusted names in college football prognosticating and Bill Connolly and Phil Steele are pretty low on the Mountaineers. I think that's they they don't return a whole lot, and that's always going to be um, a, a big issue for for a team like West Virginia. But I do think it's a little bit interesting. Second last year in the Big Twelve, this year because the Big Twelve just changed, that would have put that that's going to put them in the championship True. if they finished. Uh, which there was no championship. Granted, I think they're morons for having put that together, but and have a championship in the Big Twelve. Aside from that, that would have put them, um, you know, right in there. I I'm not sure anybody really knows um, what they're going to put on the field because the quarterback questions, you know, just you don't know what you're going to get. And the six opponents that he went up against, um, he being Will Greer, were not great last year. And the quarterback matters so much. I don't know if it's. I don't know if any of the preview magazines, the preview, the pronosticators, as you said, can actually put a good read on either of these teams, whether it be us with the new quarterback or them with really an untested quarterback, as I would characterize it. It's hard to judge West Virginia because they're transfer you. They have thirty guys on their roster that have transferred into the program. I mean, they're no one's first choice, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> everyone's last hate, hate week hate week is real. <laughs> that's right. They're the real last chance you because that's where all the JUCO guys end up. Uh they do have a that is a legitimate comment. They have a ton of JUCO they guys. Do. That come they do. They do and they do really well with them. I mean, it's it's the only reason that program stayed afloat. It really is because half of their starting team the last 2 years has been JUCO guys. That's why it's so hard for guys like Phil Steele and Connolly with the way they judge continuity and starts on the offensive line and quarterback starts and that kind of thing. They 
it's really hard for them to get an accurate read on a team like West Virginia and really hard for us to also preview. Nevertheless, we're doing it. We are renewing the rivalry with West Virginia for the first time since 2005. Black Diamond Trophy is at stake. I remember that game pretty well. We won. It was at WVU. Marcus Vick flipped the bird to the whole crowd. It was wonderful. Um, and then he got kicked out of school not too long after that. <laughs> there, yeah, that was that's one of those that you, we did. I don't know. I'm not sure anybody went out on a high note off of that. No, <laughs> no. Flipped a bird. Then he stomped on Elvis Stumerville's leg. Then he pulled a gun on some kids at McDonald's. I think there was a few other things in there, but uh, yeah, the two 15 uh, year old girls. I digress. Remember? Let's yes. digress. West Virginia only brings back three returning starters on defense, which could be two because they lost David Long, one of their linebackers for the beginning of the season. But Askew Henry, a starter from the year before, is coming back, so we're going to give him three. And then five guys come back on the offense, and they are projected pretty much as a fringe top 25 team across the board. I I just don't think this team's going to be very good. I think our guest that we have coming up will tell you a lot of the reasons why this could be a very dangerous game for Virginia Tech. And we're going to jump into that right now. We're glad to welcome in Jonathan French yet again to the podcast. We've had him on a few times, and every time it's uh, some of our most heavily downloaded episodes. So, French, thanks a lot for coming on with us today. Thanks so much. Glad to be here and, and glad to talk with you guys again. You put out some pretty good articles the last couple days. I think they came out on Tuesday regarding the West Virginia defense. And I want to get to that, but I want to talk first about West Virginia's offense, the side of the ball that is really terrifying to me. Uh, They've got some solid wide receivers, a hotshot new quarterback and Will Greer, and a stable of running backs. I counted five, maybe six guys that can carry the football for them. What's your biggest concern with regard to the WVU offense? Is it you know, Greer potentially running the ball, his passing, uh, what the running backs are going to do, a certain formation. Like, what what concerns you the most about their offense? Three words: run pass option. Uh, I think that this game, uh, for, for us old school fans that get frustrated seeing offensive linemen downfield on pass plays, between West Virginia's offense and Virginia Tech's offense, uh, the officials could probably call forty. 40 plays offensive linemen downfield this game. Uh, West Virginia, with a few notable exceptions, a vast majority of their offense is going to be some variety of a run-pass option. And what that means is Will Greer is going to call a play in the huddle. Um, as far as the running backs and the uh, offensive line are concerned, it's a running play for them. They're going to uh, run the play as a running play. And then Greer will come to the line of scrimmage. He'll count the number of heads in the box. Uh, if he has a numerical advantage in the box, he'll hand the ball off to the running back. And, you know, from tackle to tackle, everything's going to be the same. Um, if he counts a numerical advantage on the outside, rather than the receivers blocking when they come off the ball on a running play, they're going to run a pass, pass route, even though it's a running play. And the functionality of that is if Greer counts a numerical advantage on the outside, he's going to pull the ball out of the running back's uh, stomach and has a a quick single read and throw the football. Uh, They're going to do that, oh, my goodness, 60 to 70% of the time. Oh, wow. 
And you, when you go back and you watch the film, you're going to see a ton of throws where they're completed passes down the field. And the offensive line for West Virginia is going to be four or five yards up the field, actively blocking our linebackers on the play. And so it, when you run that kind of offense and, you know, apparently it's within the framework of the rules because West Virginia does it successfully and Virginia Tech does it, you know, not quite as much, but to a similar amount uh, of the time, uh, it makes it really, really challenging to play defense, uh, especially to take away, you know, quick throws to the middle of the field because the linebackers are reading run on their keys the whole way and in some cases are getting blocked rather than having the ability to drop in under a zone. So that's, that's even more than personnel, and West Virginia has some good personnel. That scheme is, is really tough to handle, especially um, if the quarterback is efficient with his reads and you know does the right things pre-snap and post-snap to get the ball in the hands of his playmakers. That's uh, that's an interesting take, and it's it's much more actually it's pretty insightful because that's a, that's a high percentage of short pass throws or at least uh, throwing the ball than I would have expected. And um, I think we saw a little bit from Will Greer to know, I don't know what his ceiling is, but I think we all know he's a, he's an excellent QB, but uh, to, to the running situation, that's when you look at the stable of backs that they have uh, that, that seemed frightening at face value. Are you more confident in our ability to get, you know, contain on the running game than the kind of short pass yardage or, or what are your thoughts there? Because they do have a big stable of backs and they're going to have fresh bodies almost throughout the whole game, given how many they are. Well, from a scheme perspective, you know, they're going to kind of take what they give you. Um, I think that their preference is that they can do enough damage on quick little throws with the, the receivers who are, uh, with the exception of David Sills, most of their receivers are like de facto running backs anyway. The idea is to get them the ball quickly and, uh, you know, like the old toss sweep from the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, this quick screen, the quick hitch, and then have those guys one-on-one out in space, break a tackle and, you know, get some extra yardage. So they're essentially running backs on the outside. Uh, the idea is that you load up the box, which Bud Foster wants to do. You take advantage of those one-on-one matchups on the outside. If those one-on-one matchups are starting to hurt you and Foster has to creep his safeties out, that makes the running game much more effective. I think that the biggest difference between what West Virginia does and what Virginia Tech does offensively is West Virginia uses a significant less amount of jet sweep and counteraction, so it's a little bit easier in terms of the keys for the defenders up front uh, to defend the run. And uh, the other thing uh, that, that you can really take advantage of is that you pretty much know where Will Greer is going to go with the football. Uh, even when he was at Florida, he was very similar to, to Gerard Evans. And that when he plants his back foot, the ball's coming out to his first read. And if it's not open, he's probably running right up the seam. Very similar to Josh or Gerard Evans. So if you can figure out a way to take away that quick throw, you kind of know what he's going to do with the football. And, and I think that that makes him a little easier to defend, even though he's a, a very athletic uh, big guy who can hurt you with his legs. So I'm assuming you think that Bud's going to stay aggressive the entire game. Like there won't be any, 
you know, staying tentative at first to figure out what they're doing. Like he's just going to do what Bud Foster does and stay aggressive. I think so. I think that, uh, you know, he wants to, he wants to let the Crawfords and McCoys and the talented backs that West Virginia has, he wants to beat them with numbers up front and spare or force the running back to cut back where his free hitter is. And in a lot of cases with, with West Virginia running the spread, that free hitter is going to be one of the linebackers or it's going to be the rover, Reggie Floyd. And the big question is, you know, in terms of worrying about the running game is, can Reggie Floyd, can Andrew Mochopalaka, can Tremaine Edmonds, and can Terrell Edmonds tackle those guys one-on-one in space? Consistently, when Bud Foster's defenses have played these teams, they'll get a lot of stops, and the offense will get some big runs when, if and when the free hitter can't make a one-on-one tackle in the hole. And that'll be the test because there are going to be opportunities one-on-one with, with Justin Crawford, with, uh, with McCoy, uh, in the hole for where a play should be two or three yard gain. And if you can make a miss, there's no other help and it could go to the house or it could be a 30 or 40 yard run. So, you know, I, I think Bud's going to do what Bud's going to do. I think that there may be some scheme things he does in coverage to try to make Will Wilger second guess on those quick throws. But outside of that, I expect you just, you know, for them to do what they're going to do inside the box that we've consistently seen with uh, the spread teams. The, the wild card is how much is Wilger going to run? Yep. And not, not as, not as a passer, but how much is he going to actually run option and read a guy and, force Foster to take that extra defender and account for him on the backside. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Greer's capable. Yeah. Greer is a capable runner, but they have no depth behind him. And if you are a head coach, do you risk beating up your generational talent at quarterback against a non-conference team, uh, even though it's a rivalry? Uh, Or uh, do you kind of keep him clean and let the running backs do the work and leave him in the pocket? Uh, that may be better for West Virginia long-term for their season. Uh, short-term, I think that that makes West Virginia easier to defend for Foster's defense. Yeah, they ran Skylar Howard a lot last year. He had 10 rushing TDs and almost 500 yards on the ground. So I was kind of expecting, as the summer went on, that we were going to see Greer running. But uh, lately I've been kind of thinking the opposite. I, I don't really know what to expect, and that that's kind of what is making me uh, you know, troubled over this matchup a little bit. Yeah. Well, West Virginia's backup quarterback, uh, and I apologize, his name escapes me right now, but uh, he was, I believe, like 10 for 22 in the spring game, and West Virginia's defensive depth was way down. So he wasn't going against a lot of scholarship guys, you know, repping against the twos on defense. And he did not, he did not look particularly impressive. So there, there's a pretty big drop-off. If they have a situation where Greer gets hurt, uh, I think that uh, you know West Virginia would would really prefer to see him stay upright rather than running the ball a lot. And and again with Foster's defense, they want to flood that extra guy in the box. So you think about last year, Daniel Johns is a running threat. Eric Dungy is a running threat. Uh, those when those guys were some kind of a running threat, Virginia Tech had trouble yep. stopping the run. <laughs> That's game. for sure. When you played. When you played Austin Allen, who's every bit as good a quarterback, but he wasn't a run threat, 
that allowed a Mook Reynolds, that allowed Anthony Chagag to to pursue the football rather than account for Allen as a runner on the backside, and suddenly you're outmanned in the box and the offense doesn't go anywhere, even Arkansas and that bonded Wisconsin-style power running attack. They couldn't generate anything. So it's all about numbers in the box. If you don't have to account for the quarterback, huge advantage for the defense. All right, let's switch over to West Virginia's defense and how they're going to defend our offense that is replacing a lot. Uh, They run a 3-3-5 or a 30-stack, and they like to blitz. Defensive coordinator Tony Gibson has been getting a lot of love, not just from you, but on uh, some West Virginia podcasts and blogs. And he had the number two defense in the Big 12 last year. So some of that is deserved. It's, it's a really counterintuitive scheme. Uh, I, I tell you, as a former offensive lineman, it is not a group of players that I, I would feel real confident playing against. So it's, it's, a, it's a unique setup. It's a kind of – it's almost going to be like uh, Bud Foster having to prepare for the wishbone on the schedule. It's that different from what other teams do defensively and, and it really poses some some challenges for the blocking scheme, uh, and especially for a new quarterback who's going to be making snap decisions for the first time in Josh Jackson. Well, I wanted to ask you specifically with what Fuente does with the flattening out of the defense, running you know run action sweeps that kind of thing uh, to draw safeties in. And you mentioned this in one of the articles you put out. Isn't that the exact kryptonite for this defense? It, it, it can be and it can't be. Um, it, it really depends on the ability to set the edge. Uh, West Virginia's three down linemen, especially the two defensive ends, they're looking to tie up blockers. That is their that is their bread and butter. They're not interested in being playmakers. What they want to do is get double teamed on a zone play, and rather than letting one of those two guys release to the next level, tie him up as best they can, and then uh, Tony Gibson's going to have athletes on the back end that they feel, you know, are going to outrun those offensive linemen as they try to get off the block late or, or and can run down your running back in space. Uh, schematically, they do not read a lot of keys, especially their outside linebackers. Their outside linebackers force them to throw the football. So if you run wide stuff and there's nothing to draw their attention and pull them to the inside, uh, usually they're going to have an angle on your blocker that's going to make it really tough to get out wide. Uh, I, I think that the key for Virginia Tech is to establish that you're going to run everything in your offense. Inside, outside, screen game, you're going to move the ball around, and you understand and expect that West Virginia is going to make you look bad at moments when you're doing that. But you have to establish that you can attack, that you can attack as you said, flatten out the defense that you can attack them horizontally in every single way so their guys are caught looking in the backfield. And that that's the kryptonite for their defense in terms of getting on the edge. Uh, if you can have a play where uh, you can you know get that outside linebacker to kind of squeeze a little bit to the inside and maybe crack back on him uh, and then manipulate the safety to be out of position, which they're, they're at least the starter last year at free safety was pretty easy to do. Uh, you can get to the edge. And the one team that really tore them up with with plays on the outside, that was Oklahoma. Oklahoma would use different kinds of jet sweep motion to get the safety to run out of of position. 
and then they would screen away from the jet sweep motion. The safeties running, you know, running to the left, they would screen back to the right, and they've got two blockers and a receiver out there against two defenders for West Virginia. And that, you know, that opened things up. Uh, the other area that West Virginia is really vulnerable, I think, is you've got to run right at them. Uh, even though they've got numbers in the box, uh, their defensive line, I think, has taken a big step backwards talent-wise from last year. Uh, I've heard rumors that they're going to start a nose tackle. Uh, that's a true freshman. Uh, the two kids that they highlighted in the spring were were bigger kids, but they weren't really very active. And last year when West Virginia uh, would would play teams, uh, they would run out a nose tackle, number 49. His name was Darren Howard. He was a hell of a player. But he was not a big body who was jamming things up. At the snap, he would actually take a step backwards and run sideline to sideline like he was an old NFL middle linebacker. And, of course, your center, who's got to snap the ball backwards and make sure that he's accounting for his A-gaps, doesn't really have a lot of forward momentum. So what would happen is that nose tackle would step backwards and the center couldn't catch him again. And, of course, the Hokies, Eric Gallo is a tough kid and played through a lot of uh, uh, bumps and bruises last year, but he's not the most athletic guy in space. Uh, so, you know, if West Virginia had been starting one of those kids, and that we saw in the spring game, I would feel, uh, you know, I would feel a little more confident. Um, but what I'm hearing about this freshman, and he's, is he's a real undersized athletic kid who can move, and that's going to present some challenges for the Hokies unless you can run right at it. That describes almost every one of the defensive linemen. Is they're athletic, but they're not particularly talented. But there's a number of them, so I think they'll be rotating guys in. And I agree with you that the size advantage we have up front, you do want to go right at them, maybe with a Stephen Peoples type, and see what you can do. I also noted. Well, I can I can tell you, I don't I don't think you know from, I don't think that their defensive line, you know, unless that freshman is a good athlete, I've seen a lot of hype for Adam Schuler, who was a you know reasonably productive player for them. But he's not a guy who's a great pass rusher. Uh, he's not particularly disruptive. Like I said, for the most part, they're like pawns on the chessboard. They're trying to tie up the offensive line. So their linebackers and their uh, their bandit, uh, I'm sorry, their spur linebacker and uh, uh, Kaiser White, who's a hell of a player, so those guys can run around in space with, without getting bodies on them. Yeah, yeah, I I was I was very very underwhelmed. Uh, I I thought there was a pretty significant drop off between their starting defensive line last year, and what I saw from them uh, from their two deep in their spring game. The frightening part is if there was one position, it seems like on this defense that you could handle being a little weaker at and still um, allow them to you know start cry you know, creating a lot of havoc for our offense, it would be that defensive line. I mean, like you said, those, you know, some of those individuals are actually just pawns in what's actually trying to be, you know, put down on the field, which is a lot of um, misdirection, uh, you know, blitzing from different angles. I mean, that, that I, I want to think of that as a positive, but it seems like if any position uh, is one where they could sacrifice a little bit, it would be on that defensive line. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, so much of that depends on our offensive line and, you know, what Vance Vice feels uh, from a confidence standpoint he can do. If if the coaching scheme for Virginia Tech is rather than zoning and 
doing a combination block on those down guys and then slipping off to the next level, you know, I think that those guys, if they can just tie them up a little bit, they're doing their job. Uh, so you negate, uh, you, you negate uh, any kind of weakness that they have because all they have to do is tie guys up. If you can scheme it where you are hot and heavy, that you are not going to double team up front, which in this day and age is really hard to do. Uh, even though those aren't the most athletic guys in the world, you know, if they are playing their technique, it's hard to get off of them off a combo block. But if you can block guys one-on-one and, you know, essentially playing defense with your offense, you can keep your, uh, your guys who are uncovered clean and let them get to the second level. I think that they can make a hay, make some hay tackle to tackle. Uh, but, you know, I don't think anybody in Hokie Nation is, feeling super confident that the offensive line, you know, and Eric Gallo is going to match up a nose one-on-one or that, uh, or that Kyle Chun is going to, uh, you know, match up with Adam Schuler one-on-one and that you can leave them clean all day without having some kind of breakdown. So I, I think that there's a weakness against a weakness factor there and they may just negate each other out. You also noted in one of your pieces that, West Virginia was better at disguising their disguising their coverages in 2015 than they were last year, and that's because they didn't have to replace a lot the year before. Last year, they replaced almost every starter in the back end, and this year, they're doing it with at least half, depending on how you look at Askew Henry and some other guys. So do you think we should be able to expose that secondary a little, even with you know new receivers and a new quarterback? Well, last year, they were pretty good on the back end with a lot of Juco first-year starters out of JUCO, and, and they're doing the same thing again at corner uh, this year. Um, the, the Douglas kid, uh, number three, that played for them last year, and I, I he may be with the Phillies, Pete. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the yeah, Eagles. Rasul Douglas. Uh, but but you know, Rasul Douglas, he was a, he was a good player, uh, so he'll be hard to replace. Most of their interceptions last year really came off him and Robert coverage fading quarterbacks in the quick throws. And then he would jump the route and step in front. And he was a really good player and jumped out on film. Uh, I think that you can exploit their corners. Um, Kaiser white is a heck of a run defender, but uh, they don't list him at 220 pounds, but he looks like a linebacker on film. So I think you want to get your, your quick slot receivers against him and force him to cover that takes him out of the box. Uh, what's challenging for the quarterback is, you have that zero coverage, so you're going back and planning and getting the ball out and getting it out quickly again and again and again. And then all of a sudden, West Virginia will drop all their linebackers and all their safeties and flood a zone, and they're really good at disguising when they're going to do it. It's not just on third and long that they drop seven or eight people in the coverage. They'll do it on first down every now and then just to cross things up, and that's where your quarterback, you don't want a young quarterback getting into a pattern and then throwing right into right into an umbrella coverage thinking it's going to be man-to-man that's much more than personnel on their back end that is that is really what scares me well i don't want to pin you down french but i need to ask you what do you think is going to happen in the game based on your analysis i'm nervous that you're not thinking we have too much of a shot here well you all have to realize if you've read my column over the years uh, i see ghost behind every tree when it comes into you know most matchups even uva scared me the last couple of years and we've seen how that's played itself out so when you watch the film you're always concerned about your biggest weaknesses and you see you know you see a will greer you see david sills who's 
you know, six five, really athletic, good route runner, uh, has all the makings of being a, an outstanding wide receiver. It's going to be really hard to cover one on one. You see a defense that doesn't look amazing from a personnel perspective, but does things that you know can really mess up an offense that's not used to going against it. Uh, at the same time, you know we have our defense, which presents a lot of the same challenges for their offense. And you know, even though depth is a is a bit of a concern, you have to feel good about that starting group. Um, if I'm a Virginia Tech fan and I'm watching uh, Virginia Tech on defense, I'm really closely watching how Reggie Floyd and Andrew Motua Plock are tackling in space. If you're seeing them missing some tackles early in the game. I think that that could be pretty foreboding to the outcome. Uh, from an offensive perspective, I think you just kind of have to bite the bullet and expect that there are going to be some some tackles for loss and some negative plays. So the, the the key factor on that side of the ball is Josh Jackson and his passing efficiency. You know, I, I know folks have talked about how he may not be as good a runner as Gerard Evans and this, that, and the other. But if, if Jackson's getting the ball out quickly and giving his receivers a chance to make plays and they're showing some ability to get some yardage after the catch that we didn't see from a, a Bucky Hodges or an Isaiah Ford last year, uh, you know, I think that Virginia Tech will be primed to get a big win. Uh, if that's not happening, um, then, you know, you start snowballing. I'm really uncomfortable predicting this game. Uh, both teams have done such a good job of, hiding uh what you know what their personnel looks like uh th- that it's it, it really could go a lot of different directions but i have a lot of faith in bud foster i think that the defensive line depth is better than it's been characterized and uh you know provided everybody's healthy going into that first game uh, i expect virginia tech's defense will carry the carry the day i'm thinking and a lot of people think that the score will be higher. I'm thinking maybe a 24-17 type game uh, for, for for Virginia Tech. Um, All right. That, that's All right. what I'm thinking right now. It could go a long way in either direction with a couple of little, uh, couple of little funny bumps and bruises. So we'll see. Well, how how funny is it that after all the conversation in the past two years that uh, one of the keys is what Moto does because it's been such a contentious discussion about him improving from two years ago to last year. And uh, now that it's resting on his shoulders, he has a chance to be uh, uh, be a hero for Virginia Tech fans and get everybody uh, amongst the entire fan base fully on his side, which I think is probably deserved given what he's done and what he's kind of improved over the years. <laughs> And Robbie, to, to piggyback on that, you kind of sparked something on me. Uh, I, I talked a little bit in my season preview about some of these spread teams perhaps using trips receivers uh, to the wide side of the field and putting Foster in a position where he's got a man up with his free safety uh, or he's got to move Motua Palaka out in coverage. I think West, and West Virginia is a team that does that trips uh, business to the wide side of the field. I think you're going to see Motua Plaka targeted in the passing game. I think that they're going to run plays that look like they're flowing towards the boundary in Tremaine Edmonds with the idea of cutting back and, and forcing Motua Plaka to make tackles or attacking him with Greer on the backside with inside zone reads. I think Motua Plaka is going to be in a position that he could have a really, really huge game 
but if he's struggling to tackle in space, uh, you know, it could go just as far in the opposite direction. So I, I think West Virginia's with a year to prepare. I think they're going to go after him, but if, they're certainly not going to attack Tremaine Edmonds. So, uh, I, you know, you can expect if they're going to go after a guy up front, they want to get Matuip Walker in, in space and see if he can tackle some of their athletes. And uh, like you pointed out earlier, they've got a handful of really good running backs and, and Greer's not the shiftiest guy in the world, but you put him out in space, he can run 10 to 15 yards as quick as just about anybody on the field. French, thank you so much for coming on yet again. Uh, we couldn't do a proper West Virginia preview without you. We, we've talked ourselves in circles all summer, so we needed to get another voice on here. So we really appreciate it, man. Do you have anything coming up on the site that we should look out for? Uh, yes, we have uh, two previews covering one how West Virginia runs their uh, runs their front seven, front eight, uh, and run defense that's already posted, and uh, the techniques that they use in their secondary that are unique uh, to, compared to other teams on Virginia Tech's schedule this year. And I believe tomorrow, which is Thursday, August thirty first, we'll have a preview of West Virginia's offensive personnel. And, how uh, how you can uh, rein in uh, Will Greer. If I could, I'd give you a little bit of a teaser on Will Greer. Uh, not many folks have talked about this. He's a hell of a player. But if I noticed one weakness in Will Greer's game when he was at Florida, uh, I-, I talked earlier, he's a one-read guy. He plants that back foot, and if the mode doesn't come out, 90% of the time he's running. However, if he tries to go to his second read, his mechanics, and specifically his front foot, uh, his shoulders will shift to look at the next receiver and throw the ball, but his front foot has a tendency to plant and not move and get back in position to throw. Uh, Tennessee uh, Against Tennessee, he really struggled to make some open throws to his second read. So, again, if you see, if you see the Hokies taking away that quick throw, for West Virginia and force him to either throw on his second read or throw on the run, his mechanics break down and there'll be some opportunities for interception. So keep a close eye on Oh, yeah. Detective French finding the holes in Will Greer's game. That's some extra bonus coverage right there. Thanks, French. We will talk to you hopefully again at some point this season. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And just to hit it one more time, check out French's articles on the key play. They're fantastic. I, I went through both of the defensive uh, articles and twice just to make sure that I could understand everything. But French, as always, you're doing uh, you're doing amazing work, and uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Well, we appreciate it. We hope your listeners will join the conversation. And again, if you have questions, put them in the comment section on the articles and. I do the best I can to answer each and every question. All right, buddy. Enjoy the game. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy it. All right. I thought that interview went really well. Robbie, what are you drinking? So I may have had this on the podcast. Did you know I checked it out yesterday? We've had 177 beers on this podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. Think about that. So uh, it's actually getting tough when I'm trying to – leave work and pick up beers and get home and take care of a baby and uh, also make sure that we get this recorded. A few more responsibilities these days. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh, so I may have already had this. If I have, then, well, 
deal with it. Uh, I, I got the resin six point brewery uh, IPA. It's good. It's heavy. It's chalky. It's an IPA. My next beer that I'll have on the podcast uh, this episode is not an IPA because I know people don't like it that much. But guess what? I I got a six-week-year-old in the other room, so if I'm going to drink something, it's something that I like. It's out of Brooklyn, New York. I like it. I am drinking the Burton Baton by Dogfish Head. Uh Quite honestly, this has been in my fridge for like six months. Uh, I I didn't have a chance. So it's to, aged. It's, it's an a, aged beer. It's an aged beer, and it's actually oak aged in uh, some kind of barrel. Uh, and it's an imperial IPA. But man, this tastes like I don't know. It almost tastes like a cask ale. It's uh, the Burton Baton by Dogfish Head, ten percent alcohol. This puppy, it kind of smells like it's got like that, like one of those bourbon beers. Um, it's pretty good, but man, it is it is strong and pungent. And maybe that's because it's old, but I didn't have time to run out to get beer today, so we're doing a grab bag from the fridge. How's that sound? That's that's true uh, you know, West Virginia trash style right there. Right. Yeah, all you need is a couch or ottoman <laughs> to catch on fire. All right, man. So French pretty much said a ton. So let's let's kind of move quickly through everything. this and get our uh, our overall thoughts on the board. Uh, I'll kick. I'll kick it off. Sure. I got a couple thoughts. One, um, so they did lose um, a little bit of talent in the past few weeks uh, that was announced for at least our game. So Javon Durante is transferring from West Virginia to Florida Atlantic. I don't want to go into why that would be happening, Lane but uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we talked about him in our preview when we went through we as somebody that was you know key. Uh, it also seems like they lost uh, Mark Sims for game one for DUI. So there's two. Second DUI. All, so, yeah, yeah his <laughs> second DUI. Uh, so the couch burners are on fire right now. Yes, they are. Uh, so there's just a lot of unknowns in the wide receiving you know, core of this team, whether it would just be short outs or long passes. That is the one area I don't think we hit with, um, with French that much, that there's there's been a lot of turnover or just missing pieces there the one guy he did mention at wide receiver was david sills and that's absolutely someone we need to look out for and i actually was texting you the other night about him that was the kid that lane kiffin offered as a seventh grader to play quarterback at usc and now he's a wide receiver for west virginia that was back in 2010 when he was offered and he actually started at west virginia wanted to be a quarterback uh, they went with Skylar Howard or whatever, he transferred to JUCO last year and played as a quarterback. And now he transferred back to West Virginia and accepted his fate of playing wide receiver. And he could be a stud. Apparently him and uh, Will Greer had some really good chemistry in spring practice, and he's got the size for it. So we'll see. But David Sills, interesting story. And he's from right around where I grew up. So I, I was following that story closely when he was offered by Lane Kiffin a while back. It was at a, a high school in Elkton, Maryland, just outside Delaware. But interesting, weird story that brought David Sills back to West Virginia. Well, what's funny is he's been at less schools than uh, Kiffin has <laughs> <laughs> in that time frame. Yeah. So if you think about it, three versus two. So because he came back to the same school, that's right. he's been at that he's been at last. Same number of transfers, less schools. Uh, 
we also didn't really talk in depth about their O-line, and they're replacing a lot on that offensive line. And I think that, especially in the middle, where we're very strong and big with Settle and Walker, we could we could have a field day in the middle of that offensive line. Yeah, Tyler Orlowski was... I don't know where he finished up in terms of being, you know, the Big 12 or... I mean, he wasn't an All-American, but he was he was a damn good uh, offensive lineman. And now Matt Jones, a young guy, is coming in. He's got two guys on either side of him that are both redshirt uh, seniors and Kyle Bosch and um, Grant uh, Lingafelter, which, yeah, again, one of those names that you don't want to have to pronounce more than once. But that that kid's not going to be having a fun day when he lines up against our, our defensive line. I think there's going to be some chances... Um, they lost technically, I think, three starters on that offensive line. So I agree with you. That could be that could be an opportunity for us. Three starters gone and uh, five of their top seven gone. And it's weird. You mentioned Orlowski from last year. Him, Sheldon Gibson, the wideout, and Razul Douglas, the corner, all ended up on the Eagles in training camp at one point. I don't know if we have a West Virginia tie or what, but it doesn't make me too happy. Well, both fan bases uh, don't really have the best reputation, so it probably makes sense. Oh, come on, man. All right, <laughs> let's slip over to the defense. Uh, we talked about their three-three-five and Tony Gibson getting all the love as their defensive coordinator, and I just want to lay out a few stats to, to just bring people back to reality. Yes, they were second in the Big 12. That was good for 73rd in FBS. There's only 130 teams, so that was in the second half of teams, 73rd in total D, 110th in tackles for loss per game. So that's really bad. 57th in yards per play and slightly better, and this is maybe what some of their scheme has to do with, 37th in the defensive S&P. So they were a top 40 team defensively in the S&P, but every normal metric that you look at, they weren't very good. Uh I know no one plays defense in the Big 12 and the offenses are high-powered, but forgive me if I don't think the 73rd-ranked overall defense is something to be super, super scared about. This scheme, yes, it could provide us problems. I still think that Fuente will be able to find the soft spots in it. Preparing for the 30 stack is not something that you're doing very often unless <laughs> you are you go up against one of those teams that run it. So. If nothing else, you're just you got to prepare your guys a different way, which and that's all it is. I don't think if they were running a number like a four three or a three four, I guarantee we'd be looking at this defense going, and eh, yeah, there's not much to be worried about. It's just you're trying to prep your guys up for something that's going to look a lot different than what they're you know accustomed to historically and probably in the future, especially since it's out of conference. Very true. And at least we have the off season to prepare, you know, better than being off of a bye week we get to face them fresh. So we've been hopefully drilling the offense on this type of defense and what we're going to do and, you know, how they like to disguise their coverages, how they like to spill all that kind of thing. So I, of course, French can make me nervous about any matchup. So hearing what he has to say about it and how chaotic it can maybe seem, especially for a first-time starter in Josh Jackson, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a little anxious, no, no doubt about it. But when I look at what they're bringing back with all these new starters, I just think that we're at an advantage there. And so I, I don't know. I 
I don't, there's not much more I can say because it's just such an unknown. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a question mark game and that probably leads us right into, uh, we've boxed ourselves into having to actually talk about what we think is going to happen in this game. And even French doesn't want to talk about what he thinks is going to happen in this game. And here we are. Well, can I just, I'll do my overall thoughts by just laying out my number one and number two concern. And my number one concern for this game is getting down early. It happened to, to us in the Boise State game. We put ourselves in a huge hole. It happened to us last year under Fuente in Notre Dame and Arkansas and Georgia Tech, Syracuse. I mean, it happened in a bunch of even games we won. It happened in, and we talked about it on our podcast. Like we don't know why this keeps happening. Why we keep getting down early when we're better than a lot of these teams. Uh, and if we do that against West Virginia, it's gonna like make everything they do exponentially worse against us because they can really put pressure on Jocks Jackson at that point, take more chances. They can take more chances offensively down the field. And so we just cannot get down early in this game, maybe a touchdown, but two scores, like, no, we have to keep this thing close. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think I'll, I'll just do my conclusion and you can come back with yours. I feel like we're going to win this game as much as I am scared shitless of it. I know about the short pass game that French alluded to earlier, but I feel like they're going to be riding, their coattails are going to be in the run game. And if we can contain that, which, and I'm not talking about Will Greer running the ball. I'm talking about their running backs. If Will Greer shows an ability to, you know, break contain and start, you know, opening up the outside of this, this could be a you know, long night, but I think we're going to keep that under wraps. I'm not sure that's going to be their MO in this game. I, I feel like the wide receiver and experience on their side is going to be difficult, um, you know, especially when they're trying to to turn that into yards that can you know produce first downs. I think our offense is going to have um, success. Quite frankly, I think Fuente knows what he's doing. He knows how to create schemes that can really confuse. Um, and it's not just him, it's Cornelson as well, that confuse what's happening on defense, finds ways to get easy chunks of three, four yards. That's his his game. He can get first downs. Um, you know, most people talk about extending drives being the, the biggest problem. That's why, you know, people go deep. It's because, you know, you, you can't extend drives for too long because you're ending up getting bottled up. I feel like Puente has shown that, one, one of his best talents is extending drives. And two, I think, is resolve. And I, we will find out very early, uh, I think, in this season, whether Gerard Evans was the reason that we were able to go down early in games and then come back, or whether it's the way that coach is, is telling players how to play, which is don't give up and you can still win. And that's how we you know, came back last year. I don't know which one it is. I'm hoping it's coached, though. <laughs> That's a good point because we don't know how much of whatever happened last year offensively was because of Gerard Evans. Is Gerard Evans the type that, type that doesn't play well until he gets a kick in the butt? And that's sometimes why we got down early and maybe a new quarterback wouldn't be like that. Or was it a coaching style thing or, or whatever else? And, and we're going to learn so many more things about the Justin Fuente era at Virginia Tech this season. I think we need to keep our defense, our uh, defensive line off the field 
as much as possible in that first half. We know that's our thinnest position on defense, and if we can keep them fresh, at least for the first half, I have confidence that this game would be going in the right direction. So keep the defense off the field, and I think we'll be okay largely in the game. That and tackling from our defensive standpoint. On the flip side, it's all about their linebackers and safeties. Like you talk, we talked about the French. Like the defensive line, it's important, but eh. and their corners, they're green, and Josh may expose them a little. But it's going to come down to their safeties, their spur linebacker uh, in Kazir White, and their linebacking core in general, who, which they have one returning starter there. So I like the way Fuente's offense is designed with regard to their defense because I really do believe that it's the exact right type of offense to expose what, what West Virginia does. And French laid out all the reasons why they could still be dangerous despite that. But with the way Fuente likes to use the slot and the jet sweep and the run action and the quarterback runs, I just think that we have a very good offensive makeup for putting points on the board. And I think we're going to need about 27 to 28 to win this game. So I think, I think we'll, we'll be able to do that. Yeah. And I also want to be excited about the defense. I, I, I really think that I, I, I'm, I know it's a Virginia tech thing that we get excited about defense. Everybody else is not so much, but I can't wait to see those guys out on the field I know. between Terrell, Tremaine, uh, settle Ricky. Uh, there's just so much fun on, on this team to see what they do. It's going to be talented. The other thing is, um, which will be interesting because this is a coaching thing. I don't, I don't believe it's a physicality thing is keep the ball off the damn ground. Yeah. Uh, maybe because if we look back at what happened in the UT game. I'm reading on Twitter today, how evidently we got eviscerated by Tennessee yeah, we got eviscerated because we had, what, four fumbles or three fumbles in that game. If you take those back, just protect the football. And it, it was disappointing when that did happen because Fuente talks so much about protecting the football and how that is you know, such an important thing for him. If they if we come out and do that again, I'm going to be pissed, honestly. I'm not, I'm not going to be happy. If just make smart throws, keep the ball safe, make start with smart runs, hold on to the football and at least give yourself a shot because we shot ourselves in the foot in that game. I have another key to the game and it's me not going to the stadium. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a key to this game because I went to Boise state in 2010. I went to the 2009 opener versus Bama in the Georgia dome. Uh, I went to the Bristol game. Uh, I think there's another one in there. I, I've been to a lot of these big opening games and we have lost every single one. So I'm staying I've away this year. I've been to a few of them. I think, yeah, I think I've, I've been there as well. So collectively, we're not doing well. I'm staying away. I'm going to watch the game in a bar with some buddies. Uh, and I think that regardless of what happens, that's a better environment for me. <laughs> right. So I have to ask, what are you doing for the game? Uh, nothing. Uh, I think we have a block party this is going to be so domesticated. It's going to be outrageous. <laughs> I can't even get into it. No, there's a block party that day. We're going to be hanging out. My next door neighbor actually is a WVU grad, uh, but she doesn't really care that much about football, so that makes it less exciting. Uh, hanging out, have uh, my wife's family in town, which will be a blast. 
but nothing too exciting. Probably just watching it here or watching it at a bar. So I'm excited, though. Let's take a quick beer break before we do our first picks of the season. Robbie, what are you drinking? So right now I am having uh, – I, I decided to mix it up. It is a Florida cracker, Belgian-style white ale. So I stayed away from IPAs. I tried to do something a little different but also refreshing. And Cigar City Brewing, which Tampa. is out of Tampa, Florida. Yep, we've had them on before. I hadn't seen this beer before uh, tonight, actually, so I picked it up. And it's good. It's um, about as straight down the fairway for a white ale as you can get. It's I, I, I'm not really sure how people differentiate between you know Hogarden and you know other you know Belgian style uh, white ales, but it's good. It's refreshing. I just I can never tell like the difference in taste. They all just kind of taste the same, like a little bit more bland, and that's probably because I drink so many IPAs. But I think it's good. Cigar City always does good stuff. It uh, evidently is a white ale brewed with. It's got uh, some coriander in there. I like but that. I could, I couldn't, I couldn't taste that if I even tried. So uh, it's uh, it's good, but oh, it just tastes like every fans. other Belgian. How about you? What do you have over there? I'm having a yards. Uh, Philly proud over here. The General Washington's Tavern Porter by Yards Brewing Company. Uh, a lot of Yards beers have a president's name and then the name of the beer. And this is the Washington Tavern Porter. And it's a 7% porter, and it drinks incredibly smooth. If you're a porter fan, which I know, second to strong IPAs, I feel like porters are the next uh, – love of most beer lovers they're they're coming second in terms of the style of beer stouts and porters and this one is really good i would i would definitely recommend it to any uh porter fan it it's just incredibly smooth for being seven percent alcohol i love it the general washington's tavern porter where was that located in your fridge was it like the very back (laughs) so this one was a little bit more recent but i think i inherited it from our family beach trip it was like we got to pack up the coolers and everyone just like threw stuff into one cooler and i inherited this one somehow but i'm glad i did because it's good i like it i'm excited for picks man this is our first picks of the season i think i beat you the first two years we did this (laughs) well first of all let's just i was actually thinking about this today the big swing factor of that would be yeah i picked against alabama for every game last year that's probably 10 games that could I could have gone a different direction. That's true, so, but you kept beating your head against the wall. <laughs> I know. I know. And uh well, I guess Alabama's on the slate again this <laughs> Yeah, they are. We'll see if you change your strategy. Um, um no, you did. You beat me. First of all, last year was a lot closer than the first year you destroyed me. I ended up at like 38% against the spread. Uh, last year, I think I was still over 50%. We were both you pretty were good up, last year. Yeah, you were up in like the 62% or something along those lines. So that's, I mean, that's against the spread. That is well above what people should be doing on a normal basis. I don't think I beat you by much. And consider the fact that we both had to pick games we didn't want to pick. We just chose mostly ACC games and the big games. It wasn't like we were picking our favorite bets of the week. We were just picking a slate of games so we both did well to get 
I think you were 55. I may have been 58, something like that. So that was good. Yeah. All right. And we're doing the same thing on this season. So let's, let's get into it. Let's fire it up. First game, FedEx Field, West Virginia against Virginia Tech. West Virginia is number 22. Virginia Tech is number 21. And we are four-point favorites currently. Robbie, what are you picking? Uh, I'm going to go West Virginia uh, on this one. That's a four-point spread. It's neutral site. We've talked about how much of a coin flip this game seems to be. Nobody knows what the hell's happening at cornerback. I don't think it's that much of a surprise. So I'm going to take a pick or I'm going to pick it being closer to a pick and I hope we win. I think we are going to win, but I don't think it's going to be by much. I'm also taking West Virginia. It's just going to be too close. I said 28 points. I think this game could be 28-27, 30-27. West Virginia could win by that same score. So I'm taking WVU minus four. If Virginia Tech does win, I think it's going to be a field goal. One thing to keep in mind, too, about FedEx is that the kicking conditions are historically bad. The Redskins have the worst kicker in the league like again and again and again. But it's partially because the field is so awful for kicking. I don't know if it's the way the wind comes in. I don't know if it's the turf, but FedEx is a terrible place to kick. So if Joey Sly's making his field goals, I feel good about us winning. If he's not, I feel kind of not so good about us winning. So I'm going to take West Virginia plus four, but I still think Tech is going to get the win. The next game on the slate is... Appalachian State against Georgia. I picked this game to be one of the games because of what Appalachian State did at the beginning of last year against Tennessee, and it kind of ruined our mojo going into week two because they already had a scare, and I think that hurt us. So I wanted to pick Appalachian State against Georgia. Georgia's number 15, and they're 14.5-point favorites. Robbie, who are you taking? I got App State in this game. They're just a solid program, and I think that... I don't have that much confidence. I've, I've heard a lot about Georgia in this offseason, but until I see it on the field, I, it just seems like Georgia's overhyped every single year in what they do. And I know their recruiting grounds are awesome, and they have a lot of you know talented people there, but App State just loves effing with people. Agreed. I'm going with App State for all the same reasons you just said. Next game, Michigan against Florida. This one is at Jerry World down in... Uh, Fort Worth, and it's number 11, Michigan, versus number 17, Florida. And Michigan is a five-point favorite. Robbie, who do you got? Uh, I'm going to have to take Michigan, even though it pains me because Harbaugh is such a whiny little bitch. Uh, it's driving me crazy in the offseason. He drives – it's just one of my pet peeves. Like, everything about him, his social media personality, I don't want anything to do with them. But – Florida's now lost 10 players, and I know a bunch of those are backups, but they're now up to 10, uh, all associated with food, like dining, basically credit card, like scam that they have going on. And a little bit of credit to McIlwain. He just really hasn't, like, backed down from this. He's just, like, suspending guys left and right. Just like, yep, yep, you're associated with it, you're done, and you're not playing in the game. So... They've just lost too much. I feel like the spread is going to widen after all the stuff that's happened, and they were already the underdogs. So I, I think I have to take Michigan in this, and knowing Harbaugh is now just playing games with, with McIlwain at this point. 
Yeah, I'm going to take Michigan as well. I don't love Michigan this season as much as other people do, but the suspensions for Florida are just too much in my opinion. And we're taking it at minus five to Michigan, and it might increase, like you said, but we're we're picking it at a minus five. Yeah. Next game, it's going to get it's going to hit like seven or <laughs> eight or something like that by the time this is all said and done because I don't even think they're done suspending people. And then smart money will come in at the end on Florida when it's like at ten points or something. That's right. All right, next game, BYU versus LSU, who's number 13. And LSU is a 16.5-point favorite, and I'm pretty sure this game's in the Superdome. I don't think it's in Death Valley. So, the, Yeah, they moved it to the Superdome um, from Houston because of everything that's ah, going on. Okay. And BYU versus LSU could be like the most comical uh, contradiction of fan bases I've ever heard of. Yeah. Well, the the weird part is, is I don't know much about BYU's fan base, but LSU's everybody's like, you know, thinks that they're generally pretty like nice fans. Mm-hmm. Like they're actually, but the type of people that they are are completely opposite. So I hundred percent agree that you 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 put those two together, and I'm not even sure how this game got lined up. And then it went to a location that ended up getting moved to another yeah. location. It's just weird. So I have it at uh, 16 and a half. Uh, LSU is the favorite, but it, it kind of went off the board. We'll pick it at 16 and a half. Uh, I think because of the location switch, whatever. But who's, what's your pick? I, I mean, I don't really have a preference here. I'm going BYU just because the points seem a lot. 16 and a half is huge. So that's the only reason I'm picking it. I don't really have that great of thoughts about LSU other than it would be great whenever they find a quarterback that can give me confidence in picking them. Yeah, I'm taking BYU as well. Next game is Cal versus UNC, and this one's at Keenan in uh, Chapel Hill. So Cal is a 12-point underdog, which I found to be a lot, and I'll go first this time. I'm taking Cal. I just think this is going to be a shootout. I don't think either defense is going to be particularly good. UNC's defense could be okay. We'll see what Brandon Harris has at quarterback under Fedora's tutelage, if he's any better than he was at LSU, the team we just spoke about. But 12 points is too many. I'm taking Cal. Yeah, I'll go UNC. I'll just go the opposite. Cal's defense is literally the worst thing that ever existed (laughs) ever in college football for like the last three, four years. So that's... No more than just a just a guess at how shitty their defense is going to be this year. The next game is NC State at South Carolina. And I shouldn't say at because it's at a neutral location, Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. Currently, NC State is the favorite at minus five. Robbie, who do you got? Uh, well, this was funny because this was one of those that Yahoo had the spread wrong. So I was banging my head against the wall trying to figure out yes, how too. South Carolina was favored by five. And then we realized that Yahoo's app was screwed up and it was actually the opposite, which made total sense. Um, which also kind of screwed me up because now I'm trying to figure out who to pick here. It's South Carolina what is it, the last four years that they've like come out in the first game of the year and done well more than they should be and beating people in the in the first game of the year. And then you have NC State with like kind of a nasty defensive line that everybody's touting. People are all over NC State this year. I'm gonna go South Carolina to cover the five just because of 
what they've done, it seems they've been able to get up in the morning every kind of early game, and then things just fall off after that. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, they did it to UNC a couple times already in this, in that neutral site. Uh, I'm taking South Carolina minus the points. I I uh, like NC State, I guess, a little bit, but not as much as some other people do. So um, I'm taking the points. Next game, Tennessee at Georgia Tech. This one is in Atlanta at the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Tennessee is a three-point favorite, and Tennessee squeaked in the rankings at number 25, but I'm not sure they weren't being ranked. Three-point favorite against Georgia Tech. Who do you got? I I went back and forth. I actually have both written down here. I'm going to go Georgia Tech, actually, here, because that's just a tricky game to start off. First of all, Tennessee does not deserve to be ranked whatsoever in any way, shape, or form this year uh, until they prove something on the field. So, yeah, good luck with dealing with Paul Johnson. Week one. Despite the fact that Dietrich Mills was, you know, dismissed from the Georgia Georgia Tech, and it was arguably one of the best running backs that Paul Johnson's ever had, I like Georgia Tech plus those three points. I honestly think they're going to compete for the Coastal. So I'm going to take Georgia Tech even with the dismissal of Dietrich Mills. I like them with those plus three points. And the last game, and I keep screwing these up because they're all at neutral sites, but it's FSU versus Bama at the same stadium as the last game. Bama is a seven and a half point favorite against number three FSU, and of course Bama's number one. So just so we're clear, so so far we both have WVU, we both have App State, we both have Michigan, we both have BYU. You have Cal, I have UNC, we both have South Carolina. And then we both have Georgia Tech. So we are almost oh, exactly the same. Is that right? And it comes down to yes. So now we come down to this last game. And um, actually, this might separate it. Perfect. I take FSU. I'm, st- I'm sticking with my move <laughs> until it pays off, which is I'm betting against Alabama. And I actually do think that FSU is going to be pretty good this year. And... I know Nick Saban is an ungodly, you know, mountain of a man of a coach, but Jimbo Fisher is not too bad himself, and he's got a lot of talent this year. And I, I, I don't know if they even win that game, but I think they might be able to get it close. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I, I mean, I want to take FSU because it's seven and a half points, but this Alabama team, they were so good last year with a freshman quarterback, and now he's a season more. We They still have Bo Scarborough. They still have just dudes all over the defense. So I'm taking Bama, even at 7.5, and, and whether it's sticking with last year's guns or not, I just think they're going to really wreak havoc on that FSU offense. Dalvin Cook was so important to them, and he's not there. When the games that Dalvin Cook set out, I felt like every single time it was questionable whether FSU was going to pull off the win, and they don't have him anymore. So we'll see if if they can do it without him now. Even though I know FSU is loaded, their defense is completely ridiculous. Josh Sweat and and so on and so forth. But I'm uh, I'm going with Bama. So we got two differences on the picks this this week. You always go with Bama. <laughs> Hey, last year it worked well up until last. And you know what? I did switch my pick when they played Clemson. 
So that's I'd, true, actually. Now that I remember, yeah, I was tuned in really well last year to that to to Alabama, but I I just love Deshaun Watson so much. So, in any case, that's it, man. No more podcasts before the season. We've done enough. I think we set a record for off season podcasts this year. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully everybody appreciates the fact that we're we're trying to find stuff to keep people uh, entertained during the off season because it's difficult for all of us. But we're here, and um, it's going to be good. It's going to be a good season. I I hope that our predictions hold up. Everything could get blown out of the water in a matter of days if we blow this West Virginia game. So. We'll just have to wait. Well, if the see. West Virginia game, if we lose West Virginia, my ten and two is pretty much done. So they, my <laughs> my prediction for this season could end literally in like four days. I hope everyone out there enjoys the game. Make sure subscribe, iTunes, Gmail. You know all the things. Just watch the game, root our Hokies on, and hope for the best. Because if we win this game, this could be a truly, truly special season. And until next time, go Hokies. Go Hokies.